0: This is intersection. I'm Matthew Petty. Shops like Sears and Victoria's Secret, once mainstays of the American mall, fell victim to the mall apocalypse as online shopping squeezed the life out of brick-and-mortar stores. But in Seminole County, a former department store at the Oviedo Mall has a new lease on life as a vaccination site for residents 65 and older. And it's not the only empty shopping mall that's been used as a vaccination site in Florida. Today on Intersection, I'll talk with Seminole County Emergency Manager Alan Harris about the front line and the war on coronavirus that's being waged where customers went shopped for clothes and shoes. Alan, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So Seminole County has moved its vaccination site into a space that was formerly a Sears department store. I was kind of interested to see the video that you all posted on the county's um, social media feeds, kind of explaining how that played out. Just if you could walk us through why you decided to to move your vaccination side and why that was a good fit.
1: Sure. So uh, initially we were at uh, Charleroose and Victoria Secrets. Um, those those old stores uh, had closed down in the mall a, a couple of years back and uh, did provide us about 14, to uh, 20,000 square feet of space. And we thought that that would be good enough. Uh, After the first week, it was pretty clear that if we anticipated uh, increasing our vaccinations in any way or, and we knew it was coming, start providing second-dose vaccinations uh, to individuals, that we would need a larger space. So we reached out to uh, Sears Corporation to see if they would be interested uh, in Chicago. Uh, They immediately returned the call and said, absolutely, we want to be good community stewards. And we would uh, love for you to uh, partner or we would love to partner with you. And uh, now we are in a space that is over 50,000 square feet just on the ground floor alone with expansion capabilities uh, up to the second floor to 100,000 square feet. So a lot of room uh, for vaccinations, a lot of room for um, uh, social distancing. So this particular Sears has been closed for about a year and a half. And uh, the check in area is uh, uh, basically where um, women's used to be. Uh, Then you go into waiting, which is where infant and uh, young boys' and girls' clothes were. And then you go into men's for vaccination. And then you go to shoes and another section of women's apparel, uh, where is observation. It's a little different with the Pfizer and Moderna vaccine than with just your typical flu shot in that you have to wait 15 minutes after the shot to be observed. So EMTs and paramedics are observing people for 15 minutes before they leave.
0: And so the bottom line is, it's just about space. As you said, you just needed a lot of space to make sure people could social distance. And then it sounds like you were kind of responding a bit to demand as well.
1: Sure. So we wanted to increase our capabilities of vaccinating the public. We know that 75,000 residents in Seminole County are 65 and older, and it was our charge by the governor and by the state of Florida uh, to do 65 and older as our priority group. So we wanted a space where we could do, you know, upwards of 2000 vaccines a day, and we are going to be doing uh, upwards of that uh, this week. Unfortunately, the vaccine supply is decreasing, So uh, we aren't able to provide as much vaccine, just simply not because of manpower or space, but simply just because of supply. We just don't have the vaccine to do that.
0: And Seminole County, I think, was the first county in Florida to start vaccinating people over the age of 65. And, you know, it was followed that same week by other counties in pretty short order. But, um, you know, there was a lot of demand, right? That very first week in particular, like registration, That booked up pretty quickly. Yeah,
1: and I mean, it's unfortunate there are just there's not enough supply and and there's thousands and tens of thousands of people that would like to get the vaccine. And it's very evident because every time we post uh, appointments available, they're they're closed and they're they're taken within a couple hours uh, and sometimes within minutes. So, um, you know, we've we've done our best to try to make it as convenient for individuals to sign up, but unfortunately, there's just not a lot of supply.
0: Uh, how has the rollout gone so far, though? I mean, is it, once people are actually signed up and once you have the supplies, has everything worked pretty smoothly as far as actually administering the vaccine to people?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So inside of the facility, uh it has been extremely um well received. We I, I I just actually walked off the floor to speak with you, um and just amazing good comments uh from everyone. Um you know, the only concerns we have had for the whole thing was the social distancing and and the Sears store allows us I mean each chair is six feet apart from someone else Um, we have uh, air air scrubbers all over the the facility just to scrub the air uh, just as an extra precaution and hand sanitizer at every single station Uh, so no matter where you turn in the building it's only a few steps between a hand sanitizer and an air purifier
0: did you have issues with getting enough people to administer the vaccine to? Because that was something that other counties had talked about—the need to get people trained up to to start actually, you know, giving people the shot. Did, was that a, an issue at the start for Seminole County as well?
1: So uh, there was, you know, there's there's training, of course, that goes involved with it. So th- there, I would say that the only situation we had was uh, of training, and and because Pfizer and Moderna are are they're the same technology, but they are uh, different in how you uh, mix them, the t- room temperatures versus the freezing temperatures and all of that. So uh, the training took a little bit longer than the normal, like a flu shot training. But as far as volunteerism, uh, just an amazing response from the community. Uh, just And a, a lot of volunteers, uh, they they volunteer for the first day, and they're like, I've got to come back. This is so well run. It's so, and this is not. I'm not touting me or Donna Walsh or health department director. It's the team. It's it's the people that are actually on the front lines doing the work. The nurses, the EMTs, the paramedics, the volunteers that are helping at check-in. I mean, they just have a passion for helping others, and it's so evident uh, just by the attitude and by uh, you know people leave and go. Gosh, everybody there was just such so friendly. And, you know, that's that's certainly what we wanted to, to foster here.
0: As far as people signing up, too, I mean, one thing that we've heard is that for some folks, especially in the 65-plus age category, you know, figuring things out online can be a bit of a challenge. Have you had to have staff available to help people through or even sign people up on their behalf
1: if they're not so tech-savvy? Absolutely. So we have a citizens' hotline that is staffed. With 14 operators Monday through Friday, and they've been taking reservations and appointments uh, for shoot months—about uh, a month and a half now, uh, starting uh, just before Christmas and then uh, up till now. So about a month, I guess. Um, and uh, so they they help people. You know, they may not uh, be tech savvy, or they they may not even have a computer, or they may not have email. Also, some folks have come to, gone to the libraries, and the librarians are very very happy to help at each one of our branches. Uh, so they have uh, assisted in helping them to get appointments. So there's been a couple different uh, ways that people can go and get assistance. Now we also provide mobile delivery to low fixed income and transportation disadvantaged communities, and in those sites, uh, community organizers, faith based leaders have helped people register.
0: Okay, so you've you've got a like a, a SWAT team, so to speak, out there um, delivering the vaccine to people who can't make it into to the site you've got up and running.
1: Absolutely. So, so while the Oviedo site is operational, there's also a mobile team that is out somewhere in the community, either a low fixed income transportation disadvantaged community or a senior 55 plus community uh, and vaccinating individuals that are 65 and older and uh, any healthcare workers that need it in those communities.
0: Do you, are you still finding you're getting healthcare workers and other frontline staff um, showing up to, to get vaccinated or is that
1: pretty much done? Oh, no, no. Yeah, it's still a big need. Um, Initially, the vaccine went to the hospitals, but it was really only for hospital staff. So it was really for individuals that worked with the hospital system or or in a hospital. So it did not include the dentist, the dermatologist, the family practitioners that aren't affiliated with a a large hospital, Uh, just those folks alone are thousands of individuals, nurses, MAs, uh, CNAs, RNs, all the folks that work, dental hygienists, dentists, dermatologists, uh, all those folks uh, would still need to be vaccinated as well because they have direct patient contact. I'm also
0: curious to know too, you know, there's been a bit of confusion in the last few weeks over eligibility in terms of, you know, whether folks from other counties can come and get vaccinated. And this is not, you know, like, a lot of counties have been dealing with this, right? Because initially it was county specific and then that, that regulation seemed to be lifted. Is that the way things are playing out or and has that been a challenge to try and make sure you're vaccinating your county?
1: So the only requirement is Florida residency. So we are seeing people uh, drive in. Just the other day, I was out uh, walking into the building and a car pulled up and said, uh, we're, we're here for a nine o'clock appointment. It was 6.30 in the morning. And I said, wow, you're, you're really early. And they said, yeah, we drove up from Palm Beach County. We didn't know how long it would take. So you drove all the way from Palm Beach County uh, for a vaccine. That is echoed here over and over and over again. People from Naples, people from Jacksonville. Um, and you know, I, I, people are looking wherever they can. And the same thing for Seminole, I, I know that Seminole residents have also gone to Orange County. They've gone to uh, Lake County. They've gone to Volusia County. They're just trying to find an appointment. The supply is so low that people are going to other counties. It, it, it is a shame uh, that every county wasn't given enough allotment to do the entire county, or at least 65 and older. But that's just simply you know, supply and demand and the pharmaceutical companies have just not caught up with the demand yet.
0: Sure. Are you able to share any numbers? And because you mentioned the you know the population or the number of folks sixty five and older in Seminole County alone that you will be looking to vaccinate, like what, how far through that population are you so far?
1: Yeah. Uh, so we're right now we're at about thirty four. Well, we are at thirty four thousand residents that have been vaccinated. And that includes uh, primarily uh, over 90 percent of those are 65 and older. The remaining 10 percent are, are uh, health care workers. So, um, you know, those are, again, the family practitioners, nurses, uh, medical staff, dentists, dermatologists, uh, those types of surgeons, uh, those, those folks. So uh, EMTs, paramedics, public health nurses. So uh, everyone that's uh, involved with dealing with patient contact, whether it's uh, specific for COVID or whether it's just patient contact in general. Uh, so that's, uh, again, though, a small percentage, Seminole County, half a million people. So uh, we're, we're not even at 10 percent yet, but um, we are starting to make at least a little bit of a dent in the 65 and older
0: as far as like getting enough vaccine to at least vaccinate that population, do you have a rough idea of, you know, when you might get the supplies to, to finish vaccinating folks who are in that 65 plus category?
1: Well, I, I certainly have a lot of hope. The The federal government has now, that new president, has put out a new uh, goal. And this is the first time that we've heard really of a specific goal. I mean, we've heard of operation warp speed but you know it, it didn't deliver as fast as we were hoping it would uh, but the goal is 100 million doses in 100 days we hope that that's achieved if that's achieved then we would start to see an increase in the doses here at our facility and even mobilely and we'd be able to do thousands and thousands of individuals a day which is really what we need to be doing not what you know not what we're currently doing, and it's you know it's much below that, and it's simply just because again, not staffing, not space, simply we just don't have the vaccine.
0: so it sounds like everything going to plan you you would anticipate moving into that upper floor of the the Sears space that
1: you're in right now, yeah, absolutely, and we have also talked to the other malls about of the other Sears stores, and the Sears uh, corporation is very interested in supporting the community. Uh, they're amazing, uh, wonderful partners, and they are willing to open up their other stores. So that is something that we're looking at. Uh, we, you know, if we did three of these at Altamont and Sanford and Oviedo, we'd cover the entire county. And uh, you know, if there was enough vaccine, we could we could certainly make a good percentage of uh, of vaccines. Uh, of, we could vaccinate a good percentage of the individuals that really need to be vaccinated. Uh, pretty short, it's pretty short time.
0: Alan, is it a little bit surreal kind of reflecting on where you are right now at the the front end of twenty twenty one in a former shopping mall store uh you know trying to grapple with this this global pandemic? Is that kind of a strange scenario to be in
1: It, it is you know we've it's very interesting that uh just you know ten months ago we really didn't know much about the the, the virus at all. Uh, we were locking down everything. You know, we've learned a lot. You know, at the very beginning of this, I told uh, folks, and they thought it was kind of crazy. And it, they said, "I said, you know, this is I would much rather Ebola than this because Ebola I understand. We have textbooks on Ebola. We know how to deal with Ebola. We do not know how to deal with COVID-19. We've never dealt with this before. We've never had uh, uh, the the unknown of a pandemic so." So in such a large um, variance of, of symptomology, you know from someone that's walking around feels great and they have COVID-19 spreading it to someone that's on the ventilator and there doesn't seem to be any rhyme or reason for anything. So um, it, it, it has been a very uh, hopeful year at 2021 um, that we had the vaccine. It's very uh, good to see that we, we initially thought there was going to be vaccine hesitancy. Because of all the, the conspiracy theories, that has not transpired. People have read the science, they understand the science, and they are throwing those stupid conspiracies to the side, and that's really good to see.
0: Well, Alan Harris is the Seminole County Emergency Manager. We've been speaking about the vaccine rollout in Seminole County. Alan, thank you so much for your time. Appreciate it. Thank you. Still to come, Florida's incarcerated population is uniquely vulnerable to COVID-19. Desmond Mead, who made a name for himself championing the rights of returning citizens, says Floridians behind bars should be a priority for vaccination. That conversation after the break. This is Intersection. I'm Matthew Petty. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis has made it a priority to vaccinate the state's elderly population. Along with frontline healthcare workers, they've been the first in line for COVID-19 vaccines. But there's another population that's uniquely vulnerable to COVID-19, people who are behind bars. Desmond Mead says coronavirus in prison is a public health crisis and it's time the state government prioritised prisoners for vaccination. Well, Desmond Mead is the Executive Director of the Florida Rights Restoration Coalition. Desmond, thank you so much for joining me.
2: Matthew, thank you for having me on.
0: So you have written to the governor of Florida asking him to prioritize people who are incarcerated for COVID-19 vaccinations. Why make this call now?
2: Well, you know, um, this is not uh, the first time that we have reached out to the governor. You know, when COVID-19 first uh, hit Florida Um, We, you know, and and we've seen that the governor made statements around uh, cruise ships. So there were people that were on cruise ships and the governor at one point would not allow the cruise ships to dock, um, you know, citing that, you know, the cruise ships is a hotbed for the, uh, for contracting COVID-19. And, you know, when, when he made that statement, you know, one of the first things that came to our mind was that that is the same analysis. For prisons, uh, because of the close proximity that people are forced to uh, have to live with each other, and the fact that you know uh, a higher percentage of people who are incarcerated have pre-existing conditions, uh, we felt that you know that immediate attention should be given to the prisons uh, uh, in respect to the people who are incarcerated there, as well as the officers who had to leave the prisons and go back home into their communities. And we knew that there was a a high likelihood of of COVID really uh, uh, showing its head in the prisons and impacting not only prisoners, but guards. And so this has been going on for quite some time. And now that the vaccine is starting to roll out, we're saying, okay, Governor, you missed your opportunity to uh, 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 stem uh, uh, the flow of, of people contracting Uh, COVID in prisons, but here you have a second chance to do the right thing. and, And doing the right thing means prioritizing vaccinating people who are incarcerated, as well as the people who are in charge of guarding the people who are incarcerated.
0: If you're just joining me, my guest is Desmond Mead, the Executive Director of the Florida Rights Restoration Coalition. We're talking about the push to give people who are incarcerated in prison or in jail access to COVID-19 vaccinations uh Desmond how much of the work of your organization is now dedicated to to the welfare of people who are behind bars because you know your organization was sort of founded on the principle of of extending voting rights uh to folks once they were out of prison but it seems like you've had to pivot a little bit because of the pandemic is that the case
2: Yes, yes, that is. You know, and and I'm going to tell you that one of the things that I'm most proud of uh, is the response that we've made during the COVID pandemic. You know, I I like to brag a little bit and think that we, during the COVID pandemic, you know, Florida Rights Restoration Coalition have really contributed more than any other organization or even governmental entity uh in responding to the uh COVID-19 pandemic and why I say that is that once COVID hit and we've seen that the administration was slow to move uh we dedicated our own resources and we have distributed hundreds of thousands of of, of surgical masks and n95 masks uh to correction officers and and sheriffs and and surgical masks to people who are incarcerated in jails and prisons from Key West, which is Monroe County, all the way to Escambia County, all the way across to uh, Duval County, and all points in between. Uh, We've made sure that we distributed masks, we made sure that we've distributed uh, sanitizer uh, for whatever facility was willing to accept it. And this is something that we have continuously been doing uh, uh throughout the process uh just recently we were able to acquire another million masks and over 500,000 ounces of sanitizers that we have uh, expanded towards distributing even to supervisor of elections offices and homeless shelters as well uh because we know how important it is that when you talk about the pandemic that there is uh, a vulnerable populations there are the elderly, there are the people who are homeless, and there are the people who are in prison. And, and so far, it seems the governor is only focused on people who are elderly. And so we've taken upon ourselves to do what we can to help the other two remaining vulnerable populations and ensuring that if you're homeless or you're incarcerated, uh, that there's some type of uh, a, a protection uh, that's out there for you. And so I'm I've been really uh, excited about it, but then even uh, in addition to that, you know, while we've been dealing with the voting rights issue around Amendment 4 and having to uh, uh, deal with the fines and fees that folks have been uh, uh, required to pay, uh, what we've seen, even in our efforts, that we were able to raise almost $30 million to help people pay fines and fees. But here's the the part that, that I think is so beautiful is that in doing so, we've saved jobs. We have infused almost $30 million into uh, a Florida's economy. We've saved taxpayers' dollars. And so what we've demonstrated throughout the process is that there is a way that we can advocate for people who have felony convictions that would benefit everybody uh, in the state of Florida. And we're proud of that.
0: How many hoops did you have to jump through to try and get some of that personal protective equipment to folks in prison, whether they're guards or or people who are behind bars, because there are some bureaucracy you would have
2: to walk through to to make that happen, right? There was so much uh, bureaucracy. You know, we we faced, when we initially started, the biggest one we faced was in in Orange County, at the uh, local Orange County jail, um, uh, where we were uh, uh, constantly rebuffed in in our attempts to uh, provide uh, masks to officers and, 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 and folks who are incarcerated. But what we did was that we got a bus, a, a, a huge tour bus, and we drove around the state of Florida, uh, put many miles on our bus, uh, offering those services, offering our bus as a, 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 like a command site uh, in areas that were uh, doing the vaccine we were uh, offering up to different municipalities that if their health professional needed a place uh, to get out the sun and, and to relax and, and to take a, a a break, that they could have used uh, our bus. We provided water and chairs, you know. And so we was traveling around. Uh, some folks uh, it took one or two times to to um, uh, uh, get them to agree to accept the uh, supplies. But then other municipalities, you know, in Dade and and I believe it was uh, not Lake County, but um, uh, I want to say Polk County, in uh, Duval County eventually, and even in Brevard County uh, and um, uh, St. John's County, we were able to uh, find local sheriffs uh, that willingly, you know, in the Latcho counties, they were willing to get these supplies, and we were willing to give them, and we still are. Is there an analogy to trying to
1: get
0: vaccines then into the arms of prisoners who, who want that vaccine and need it? Like, is it not really about working with the state of Florida and more about sort of finding either private prisons who are willing to help you out or, or kind of help further the cause of getting prisoners vaccinated or, or even entities at the local level? Do you think that's the way forward?
2: You know, I, I, you,
3: know you would...
2: You would think that that the state would be willing to, I mean, jump into a partnership with a with a a, a private organization in trying to serve its its residents, you know. Um, but that that has been a challenge. But the parallels that I see uh, with the attempt to get people who are incarcerated vaccinated, I think goes back to how are we viewing people who commit felonies, right? and i think that it is so important and one of the things that's very important to our organization is to shift that narrative that that not everyone who commits a felony should be written off for the rest of their lives not everyone who commits a felony should lose the right to vote and and and, and forfeit the right to be treated with dignity you know and, and, and respect we got to understand that folks who commit felonies is still someone's son someone's uh, uh mother a uh, father a sister or brother, you know, and, and that their lovers, they have lovers who care about them and we should treat them as if they were our own. What if our son, you know, or daughter make a mistake and end up becoming incarcerated? How would we want them to be treated? And so I think what is key or central So all of this is understanding that in spite of the fact that someone may have been convicted of a felony offense, in spite of the fact that they're incarcerated, does not make them less human, right? And a nation is judged by how it treats the lowest among them.
0: What about buy-in from the unions? Because you mentioned um, the guards and other staff uh, as being folks you're helping get PPE to. But as far as vaccinations, I mean, have you gotten some buy-in from unions who are also pushing for the same thing?
3: Yes.
2: And, and what, we, what we've what we known is that or what we've seen, I should say, uh, even uh, at the onset of uh, uh, COVID pandemic here in Florida, was that there were uh, several uh, associations um, that organized uh, correction officers that were very vocal about making sure that the officers had adequate PPE. And these are the same organizations uh, that I know is, is, is striving or pushing for uh, a vaccination as well. Uh, we have, you know, I, 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 I serve in a very unique position because uh, this past year I was honored to be a part of the National Commission on COVID-19 and criminal justice. And this was a bipartisan commission that was co-chaired by former Attorney General Alberto Gonzalez and Loretta Lynch. Uh, and, and and I'm proud to even say that the commission also included um, our very own uh, state attorney for my fourth judicial circuit, uh, Melissa Nelson. And, you know, that commission was very eye-opening and and, 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 and we made some recommendations. And one of the uh, recommendations that we made was how do we prioritize the health and well-being uh, of people who are incarcerated, understanding that these individuals are will be interacting with the general public in the very near future and, and understanding as well that how we treat people who are incarcerated can and will have a direct impact on the resources that's needed. Because if people who are incarcerated are not getting the vaccine, are not getting the protection, they are ending up utilizing the facilities on the outside of the prisons, the hospitals, and and the and the staff that's needed to, to treat these individuals, and that takes away uh, from uh, resources that can be used for people who are not incarcerated but in the need of a medical assistance. What
0: about vaccine? Uptake or willingness to to get the vaccine, too, because I've read that there may be some reluctance from some people who are incarcerated to even get the vaccine if they were given the option. So I'm wondering if, you know, once there is some supply available for people who are behind bars, there's going to be some education needed to encourage people
2: to get the vaccine. I mean, and you see that, you see that even outside the prisons that, you know, particularly uh, you've seen that in, 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 in the minority communities. Uh, that have naturally had some sort of, some level of distrust uh, uh, of the government, you know, and then, of course, African-Americans, uh, thinking back of, of, of instances in the past to where uh, they were used for experiments, right, that there is a natural uh, a reluctance that, we're, that we see uh, on, the, you know, on the outside, and so it only makes sense that you would also see that on the inside as well, but I think the key is education. I think the key is leaders actually taking the vaccine or influences taking the vaccine and demonstrating uh, that, you know, there's no harm in, in taking the vaccine. And it's it's for everyone's best interest.
0: So you've written to the governor. You've brought this to the attention of the government of Florida a couple of times. Now, what what's next? Like, what is your next move to
2: try and get some movement on this? We are just going to continue to uh, push forward whatever, you know, just like in the past, uh, when the governor didn't respond to our, our request to work with us and, and provide PPE, we moved forward. We did not wait on the governor. We did all that we could. We, 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 met, we met with uh, prison chaplains, we met with wardens, we met with sheriffs and on one-on-one, and you know, some agreed to work with us, and, and we've been successful there. And those that didn't, you know, we we could only continue to try. But one thing that we would not do is that we would not sit on our hands and wait for the governor or our government, right, to take the first step, right? Because every time, every day that they're sitting on their hands, there's someone else that's dying in prisons. There's someone else that is contracting uh, uh, COVID in prisons. You know, when you're seeing the national trends. Where you're finding that people who are incarcerated, right, that there's a great disparity. Uh, like there's 60 percent uh, higher rate uh, of population, the mortality mortality rate within prisons as it is uh, out there in the community. You know, when you see these numbers and knowing that 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 we can impact these numbers, then we can't just sit and wait for a governor or a government to do something. We as as citizens of the state, you know, we have to take matters in our own hands. Somewhat like what we did with Amendment 4, you know, when, when the government or politicians don't wanna move and, and, and place people over politics, then it's up to the people to take matters into their own hands and and and, and, and 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 elevate the needs of people and make sure that we're doing everything we can to protect our loved ones, to protect our neighbors, to protect any citizen of this state no matter their color, no matter their political preference, they're a human being that deserves to be treated with dignity and respect.
0: Desmond Mead, Executive Director of the Florida
2: Rights Restoration Coalition. Thank you so much for your time.
0: Listen, I really
2: appreciate it, and I hope that you know folks who are listening uh, will be inspired to find something that they can do uh, to place people over politics and to attend to the needs of their loved ones or their uh, neighbors or fellow Floridians who are suffering because of this pandemic.
0: Up next, the pandemic took a big bite out of tourism and that's been felt by the Orange County Convention Centre after the break, Convention Centre Executive Director Mark Tester talks about cutting costs at the vast complex and waiting for the crowds to return. This is Intersection. I'm Matthew Petty. The pandemic took a big bite out of tourism, and that's been felt by the Orange County Convention Centre. The Convention Centre is working to cut costs at the vast complex as it waits for the crowds to come back. Well, Mark Tester is the Executive Director of the Orange County Convention Centre. Mark, thank you so much for joining us. Glad to be here. So I guess 2020 was kind of a year for the books and not in a good way as far as tourism goes in Central Florida and particularly for... An organization like the Convention Center, which typically would you would have a lot of people going through your doors, um, I wonder if you talk a little bit about the plan to to trim the budget a little bit, and in particular to um, you know cut the workforce by about fifty five percent. What exactly is going on there, and what's the timeline for that?
3: Sure. So we we actually started off our fiscal year twenty twenty on pace to have a record year in Orange County in our first six months our fiscal year starts October uh, the 1st uh, and we were really ahead of pace when uh, when groups began to cancel in mid-March. So coming into this budget year which again began on October the 1st we we're absolutely faced with a, a budget that we had submitted that wasn't going to actualize. So we we had to begin to formulate on what we were going to do. Our revenues uh, uh, have been significantly cut and we rely on two key revenue sources. First is the tourist development tax or the hotel tax that guests pay the, when they're, when they stay in the hotel, uh, that pays for our debt, our capital and any operating shortfall uh, that we have. And then there's the revenue that we generate. And of course, when ga- when events cancel that virtually uh, was cut to, to very, very little. Uh, and the first thing we did was, was we looked to cut, any expense that we that we could in our budget that we could cut cleaning utility utility spends obviously less shows means less electricity and water and other things so we went all around our budget and, and and cut as much as we could and then at that same time that that was occurring we we really got a fortunate opportunity that the cares act funding began and the the county had a real need for polished and experienced people to help that process and right away we found that as a great opportunity and we partnered with the county to supply just about 80 of our people that worked full-time on CARES Act funding. Uh, so they, they took calls, helped people with their applications, uh, did a variety of different things um, and, and a lot of our people college educated, very experienced, were ab- absolutely able to provide a, a level of service uh, that the county and our citizens receive that wouldn't have been available if they had hired off the street. You know, very much trained, very polished, very experienced in, in the way of the county. So that that worked out tremendously and, and salary and benefits were paid for uh, by the CARES Act funding for dollars. And so anybody that was paid, that was working on CARES Act, that was, that was covered. And that was a great opportunity for us. And then we were approached by the, the county utilities department and said, there is a job hiring freeze all across the county due to COVID. And their business was actually up. People were staying at home, using more water, um, using more of their services than before, yet they had a hiring freeze like everyone else in the county and they needed some positions temporary filled. And so that was absolutely a a tremendous opportunity to begin transferring employees over um, over to the utilities department. And all told, between CARES Act funding, transfers to utility and now other departments within the county, transferred at one time or another about 190 um, of our full-time equivalents. And when we need the employees, we can call them back temporarily and then send them back. So it, it really has been a best case scenario for us.
0: The revenue and expenditure, if I'm just looking at some some of the uh, data from from last year, $75.3 million in revenue and then $74.6 million in expenditure. What does it look like for the coming year, like what are you anticipating in terms of what's going to come in and how much you are going to have to spend?
3: Well, that's kind of been a moving target. You know, we, we are, we are waiting for events to come back. Uh, and and we're very hopeful that, uh, that events really start really turning the corner. We're looking at, at June and then in, in the summer months, really picking up. We've got a, a tremendous a calendar of events um, that, that, that are in, in the following, you know, the last, Three four months of the year, so we're really uh, optimistic that, that that comes back. Um, uh, but but certainly we we are we are you know looking significantly less. Uh, you know we've already trimmed our budget. Uh, you you know about, by about seventeen million, and that number probably will go well north of that. Um, and mm-hmm. it depends on the events. Every time you have an event, you've got expenses along with it. So it really is a, is a moving target, at, you know, at, at this time.
0: What's your strategy for trying to get people to come back? Because you know, one of the things about the convention center is that space is enormous. And if I think of some of the shows that I've I've covered as a reporter, like IAPA, for example, the um, you know the themed entertainment industry trade show, that thing is huge to the point where you can have simulations of uh, you know, roller coaster rides and the like on a convention floor. You know, just acres and acres of space, and there's still room to burn. So, I mean, as part of the strategy, you've been saying to people, look, you can spread out here. You, you can come back because we we can ensure social distancing.
3: Yeah, and that that's absolutely what what we've been doing. So we we we've got a, a three pronged approach on hosting modified events. Uh, we have not hosted anything yet to the size and scope of Biopa. Uh, that will come in late fall, actually, next fiscal year. Uh, they did go virtual um, uh, for this mm-hmm. fiscal year in, in October, November.
0: Was that disappointing, Mark?
3: Um, you know, we certainly want everyone to to host their event as they feel they safely can. You know, it, it just been realistic as of late um, that events, especially with international scope, with travel bans for corporations, uh, with international travel restrictions, that event of that scope in October of 2020, um, you know, was faced as a decision that they, uh, that they needed to, to cancel. Um, but, you know, and we are working with each event based on their own needs. Um, uh, just several weeks ago, we had the largest business to business event post pandemic, the Surf Expo. Uh, and they, uh, uh, they hosted their event um, and had about eight, 800 10 by 10 booths, which is, pretty significant, you know, uh, you know that, that, uh, and, 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 and they, um, they had about 3,000 people in attendance. Now those numbers are significantly down what they're, what they're generally used to, um, but it was a great event for them. And so what they did uh, along with, with, so we've got a three pronged approach, um, which is our recovering resiliency guidelines, which kind of outlines everything we're doing. Uh, we have uh, uh, we were one of the first convention centers to receive the Global BioRisk Advisory Council's GBAC Star Accreditation, which is from a third-party validation on cleanliness, disinfection, and, and, and disease and disease control. Uh, and then we have a partnership with Orlando Health uh, and what we're calling the Medical Concierge, where they are um, co- consulting with each event um, and helping them educate on how to have a safe event, what to do. Uh, and how to do it safely and giving them materials to help promote their event. And so the Surf Expo uh, re- really partnering with us pretty, put a, a tremendously robust safety plan in place, um, it, it ensured that everyone was wearing their mask, um, that, that hand sanitizers and everything was working. Their floor was, like you may have noticed at IOPA, where they bring, bring the aisles in as close as they can and then they want sure. they want them to be full. They want aisle density. They want everything to look back. And it's a perception-wise. That's what you kind of want to do in a trade. Now it's the exact opposite. You bring those aisles, you spread them way out. Um, generally shows aren't doing uh, aisle carpeting, so there's no allergens caught up. They do one-way aisles. Uh, they spread everything out. Uh, they're doing uh, a lot of other things in, in for, in, to ensure uh, that people uh, uh, operate and feel comfortable and the industry always looking at us saying, what are they doing? This is the first large B2B event. Numbers of customers were there, were here looking at what they were doing, copying what they're doing and ready uh, to uh, to come back.
0: And then, you know, the, one of the other things that there's been a little bit of scrutiny on, especially over the last uh, 10 months because of the situation with the economy in Orange County is the plan to expand the convention center correct me if i'm wrong but i think it's some 605 million dollars which was um, earmarked for that expansion what can you tell me about that i mean is that going to go ahead at some point or are you are you in sort of a, a limbo as far as that's concerned
3: so the the we have we have terminated all contracts with the with the design team at this point we could only uh, delay it for a certain period of time and we were not going to have the finances ready within that time frame uh, so we we did terminate that. We're about fifty percent design uh, of that process. Um, it was uh, the six hundred and five million dollar um, plan was actually two distinct um, uh your projects. One was truly an expansion of the facility, a two hundred thousand square foot multi-purpose hall uh, uh, on one side of the facility of on this one side of our north south building. Uh, that was going to be either additional exhibit space or a, a large plenary session or uh, for sporting events, uh, a column free 200,000, uh, very flexible space. But truly an expansion of the, uh, of the facility and what had been originally planned when the building was built. The other side was a grand concourse with ballrooms and meeting rooms. And that's what I would call a, 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 a finishing of what was originally planned. Uh, so when the facility originally opened, it opened in 2003, and obviously that was around, around 9-11. And so from some value engineering had to occur during that, during that time. And so that was value engineered out of what was originally planned for the facility. And so right now, from the south to north concourse, you have to actually walk outside. Um, there is, so there's connectivity challenges in that building. Uh, there is no dedicated ballroom and a limited number of meeting space. So it, when in fact um, the, the TDT is back up uh, to well above acceptable levels, that would be the, the conversation that we would want to start having um, is, is can we look at, at, at that connectivity and the meeting rooms. Um, but we know it's not going to be just turned back on and we may have to uh, go back out and have a community process and really look at what has changed in the industry. Is that exactly what we want to do? Uh, what it what what is different and 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 involve the community in, in a bigger way, almost like and truly, you know, starting over. While we do have design plans at fifty percent, at um, you know, we may have to go through a process to reacquire that the the the, the uh, uh, you know and put a bid in place because we have terminated uh, the contract. So it will be more or less a, a starting over, but for all practical purposes, you know that uh, the, that plan uh, has been shelved.
0: Mark Tester, it's interesting you bring up 9-11 because, I mean, that, that has been an event that people have talked about in terms of the impact it's had on the economy and especially when it comes to tourism, right? I mean, even thinking about TDT, uh, you know, it's been said that we've seen levels this past year that there haven't been since 9-11 and the huge impact that had on the tourism economy in the United States. So it's kind of interesting that, you're talking about a design that was initially kind of impacted by that catastrophe. And now we're talking about a catastrophe, you know, some 20 years later, which is also having an impact on the way the convention center is going to look down the track.
3: Yeah. And there's been no doubt about, I mean, you know, the, the, the 9-11 treasury certainly, you know, devastating to our country um, and, and stopped the industry for a very short period of time um, and then rebounded, but rebounded um, with you know, uh, in in an economic depression, but rebounded, you know, back to somewhat sort of business very quickly. This has been absolutely entirely different where the entire industry, the entire country would shut down for such Mm -hmm. length of time. And no one could have predicted not only the, 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 to the extreme, but to the length of time that that the pandemic has, has occurred.
0: This is a tough position to be in, right? You're you're in charge of a, a massive convention center. You're facing a pretty uncertain future at this point, but are are there's some signs of optimism. I mean, do you sort of feel like the convention center and, and the, the traffic that it normally sees is going to come back in some form in 2021?
3: Uh, you know, absolutely. You know, how, how quickly it comes back, you know, it, it, it will truly depend on how the vaccines go and also the health of the industry that that event is in. You know, events are truly representative of the, of the industry that they uh, are, are part of. Uh, so if they are healthy, then their, their event will be happy, healthy. But mm-hmm. there is, there is pent up demand. Uh, people need to get together uh, in the case of medical events, continuing education, uh, that that is absolutely the best place. Um, so there is an absolute need for face-to-face. And so, and, and, and not only that, we're in a great position uh, in comparison to other, uh, you know, destinations and, and we say that optimistically and that's what we're certainly trying to be here, uh, you know, in Orange County in, in Orlando. Um, we are, have a, have a reputation as a very clean, very safe city that does things the right way um, We're an outdoor city um, where you can come in and, and be outdoors and, and that is a, 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 an, op, an advantage. For safety, people want to do events outside. They want to have activities outside, and so that gives us, you know, a real advantage. And then the reputation again, what what our airport has, what what the theme parks have, you know, are a worldwide stellar reputations for cleanliness and safety. Uh, and so I think of any destination, we're ready to recover, hopefully, as quick or quicker than any anyone else. So that that's where we're we're trying to remain optimistic. We're we're. We're working really hard to make sure that we're we're safe. Uh, the, the the advantage we've been able to have uh, with the temporary transfers of employees keeps them engaged and, and and gets them ready to come back and hopefully thankful that they've been able to keep a job and, and ready to resume you know our, our what our, what we've chosen as a career, which is in the face-to-face and convention uh, industry.
0: Well, Mark Tester is the Executive Director of the Orange County Convention Centre. Mark, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Support for Intersection comes from Advent Health and from our listeners. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can find archived episodes on our website, wmfe.org slash intersection. Production assistance for today's show from Clarissa Moon. I'm Matthew Petty. Thanks for listening.